The opinions and views shared in this podcast are the opinions and views of the host and the host alone. They are not a reflection of his employer or any other organization that the host is a member of. The host does not speak for anyone, only himself. This is the I Am Pith Podcast. Get ready for contact. What's up, everybody? This is your boy Dex with the I Am Pitch Podcast. And I have a very, very, very special guest here on the show today. We have Mr. Joe Fair. He's an author and he is also a Vietnam combat veteran. Mr. Fair, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing fine, Dexter. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let me just say thank you for coming on my show. I appreciate you gracing us with your presence. And I appreciate the book that you have written telling us about your experience in Vietnam. I just want to tell everybody, ladies and gentlemen, I listened to the audio book the other day. Y'all know me, I'm special. I don't like to read. But if you give me a good audio book, I will get through it. And I went through his audio book. And Mr. Fair is also from Kentucky. And he's also in a Facebook group for Kentucky veterans. And he posted his book in there a while ago. And I've been saying I was going to get it. And I finally got it. And I am so glad that I did. Mr. Fair, so tell the people about yourself. Where are you from, sir? Well, I'm from, from Kentucky. I live in a little town called Campbellsville, which is about, oh, if you looked at the map of, of Kentucky, almost due south of Louisville, about 80 miles. Uh, I grew up here, went to Adair County High School in Adair County, Kentucky. And then when I graduated from high school, I wasn't uh, uh, going to go to college. I was on a farm. And with that, uh, I wound up getting drafted in, sept- in September 1968, went into the Army for uh, uh, two years, but then I wound up staying 33 months because I extended when I came back from Vietnam, got married, extended. Uh, had two careers going after I got out of the regular Army in 1971, in June of 71. I joined a company called Ingersoll Rand Company, and uh, I worked for them 40 years, and I retired in 2011. But at the same time, I wanted to c- continue my military career so I wound up joining the Kentucky National Guard in 1974, October 74, and I stayed with them until uh, May of 1997. Uh, had a, uh, went to the with the guard. We were called up for Desert Storm. I was a first sergeant in an artillery unit. I was in, in Vietnam. I was in the infantry, and uh, but in uh, uh, Desert Storm, I was uh, first sergeant in an artillery unit. And then I, uh, like I said, we we served there, and I I uh, retired from the military in 1997 as an E-8 first sergeant. But uh, then I retired from Ingersoll Rand in 2011, and now I work for my wife. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably the hardest job of them all, I bet. I told her something, I thought she was no drill sergeant. (laughs) (laughs) Man, I tell you, that is a a great history you have, sir. Absolutely great history. So when the Vietnam War kicked off, how old were you? Let's see, when it kicked off, when it started in 19... We really got involved in like 1964, so yes. I was 14, and I got uh, I got drafted at an early age. I volunteered for the draft. Everybody said, "What's that mean?" Oh, okay. When I when I turned 18, my dad and I went to the draft board in our little town of Columbia, Kentucky, and uh, they had to sign up for the draft. And I was a one A since I wasn't going to go to school, and I was farming. And the lady had told me that it would be up to six months before I'd get drafted. And I told her I didn't really want to wait. I'd sit around waiting and dreading to get that draft notice. She said, well, you can volunteer for the draft 
and your name would go in a, a, a sooner pot, she called it. And that was September the 4th. And I thought, well, it'd be you know, a couple of months. I can kind of plan like that. But three weeks later, I got my draft notice. So I went in the Army in, in 25th Ooh. of September, 1968. They got, they got so quick. Yeah. The, the war was in, in a heightened, uh, was, was going on pretty strong in 68 and 69. And uh, a troop build up in 69 was a, the largest troop buildup we had over there. So it was 600,000 troops. So uh, I got called up in September 68 and actually arrived in Vietnam in uh, uh, April 1st of 1969. <laughs> that, was a, that was a great a- April Fool's Day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. What an April Fool's joke on that one, huh? Yeah, yes. <laughs> so let me ask, what was the attitude like at that time around where you were growing up about the Vietnam War? Because we know how the attitudes were. Yeah, from the news around, media, but how, what was it like from your perspective as a fourteen-year-old kid? A small country town, country area, very, very rural, uh, very high in patriotism. Uh, with both my family, a lot of my my dad served in World War II. A lot of my uncles, many, many of my uncles, all served in World War II, and uh, even one served in, in uh, Korea. But very high patriotism in our area. Uh, nobody was really a against the war like you know in some of the larger metropolitan areas but uh, like louisville <laughs> like, like louisville and yes but uh uh when i left it was very patriotic you know so i felt good about i i thought it was the right thing the, the war was the right thing and and i guess in our minds at that time was you know stopping communism was a stepping stone toward uh australia new zealand uh singapore that you know communist china you know, communist china marched away through that part of the world and I thought it was a, that Vietnam was a stepping stone. We were doing the right things, supporting the Vietnamese people to stay free. So, man. And how old were you when you uh, when you got on the plane to go overseas? I was eighteen uh, in uh, uh, April of of nineteen sixty nine. I was eighteen, but then uh, I turned nineteen in September nineteen sixty nine. So I had a birthday in Vietnam. I turned nineteen. Yeah. Man. So and I was reading through your book, you know, and I was. <laughs> one of my favorite parts was I guess you got assigned to watch over some officers yeah. and you decided to grow yourself up a steak. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. We we were at, at a place called Zion, which was the, the support command for the first division. And, uh, uh, they decided to keep us busy. You know, I, I was guarding a swimming pool. I didn't even have a weapon. I was in an outfit. This is really strange. And then, uh, they were having a beer party, and, and I thought, well, the most best thing I could do is stay as inconspicuous as I could, so I just stayed out of the way. And when they finished and everybody had left, you know, the grill was still there, and it was still hot coals there, and there was some raw steaks there, and there was some baked potatoes and salad. I thought, what the thunder? Take advantage of it. I'd never had a grilled steak before. <laughs> I'd, always had, I'd always had chicken fried steak, country fried steak. I throwed that on it, and I was, I was eating and having a beer and eating a salad, and the sergeant of the guard came around and he was saying, Private Fair, what the thunder are you doing? I said, hey, I, it's stuff, stuff's going to waste. And I said, you guys in the military have trained us to take advantage of every every situation. And I said, the worst thing to do is send me to the jungle. I'm going to go there anyway. So he left all the movement. So, oh, man. That first time great. I ever had a grilled steak, Dexter. The first time I grilled steak, our steak was always chicken fried in a skillet, you know? <laughs> what did you think of uh, your first real steak? Uh, it was good, yeah. It's just I didn't know it. I, I probably overcooked it. I, I don't recall, but I, I I like my steak medium well now. But then it had to be it was, you couldn't be any pink inside at all the meat, you know. 
<laughs> so, you know, I was, as I was reading the book and when I was reading it about your first time out in the bush, first time out on patrol, it, yeah. have you seen the movie platoon with Charlie Sheen? I sure have seen it. So you know, yeah. as I'm reading your book, yeah. I am picturing Charlie Sheen in the opening of the movie platoon where he's humping in the jungle. He's the new guy, the young kid. And just That's your right. description of how miserable it was and how hot you had all this gear. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I was forced to, when I first got there, landed there, I had packed my rucksack. The guys in the rear had helped me pack the rucksack. And when I got there, they helped make sure that I didn't have stuff I didn't need. And I, I never forget that the guy said, I had a T-shirt and underwear on, and drawers on. And the guy said, those got to come off. I said, do what? He said, the, the, the sweat and everything will, will rot you. To, you know, it'll give you crock, crock, uh, jungle rot and everything else. So right there in front of everybody. I took off my pants and shirt and got rid of those, my T-shirt and my drawers and threw them in a hole and got back on the guys. Now you leave your socks on, but he said, that's the way we patrol it. And they helped me get my stuff organized. And it was, it, even the guys in the rear helped me before I went out to get my stuff organized. So I wouldn't like Charlie Sheen. I didn't have a sleeping bag, a poncho, <laughs> uh, and all that stuff. You know? <laughs> so yeah, I remember that. And Charlie, but I was like Charlie, Charlie Sheen. I was sweating, hot, miserable, afraid there was, uh, the, an enemy soldier behind every tree and the guys would keep telling me you know, kind of calm down. They're not everywhere, but they're, we got to be cognizant of what we're doing. But uh, uh, it was tough. It was the times of just putting one foot in front of the other. Cause I wasn't used to the, the heat and all the, the weight and humping, even though uh, I had trained at uh, Fort Polk, Louisiana. I remember I trained at Fort Polk, Louisiana. It was 40 degrees there. Ooh, it, was, was that, it wasn't acclimating us for the, it wouldn't get us to get ready for the jungle. But, uh, was that Tigerland? I, I was at Tigerland, Fort Polk, yeah. Yep, Tigerland, yeah. Man, yeah, just, you know, I was just reading the story and going through it, you know, and I was thinking about my experience going to Iraq, and I yeah. had the same perspective, like, oh, they're everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and I was waiting for, you know, for me, it yeah. never really came. Like, we had contact, but not not like you all did out in the bush, yeah. you know. Because it was more so man on man for you all, and it was actually a lot of the traditional army tactics, like bounding, moving, and all that. We didn't have a lot of that. It was most mostly them hitting us and then running and us trying to find them. You know, so I didn't get in any gunfights. So, but you did, and yeah. I was surprised when I learned that uh, when I was reading them, they made you the M, the pig gunner, the M sixty gunner. You weren't that big of a guy though. No, I was about six. I'm about six one at that time. I was about one hundred and fifty pounds. Yeah. They called it a pig, but that thing sure kicked my butt. But I, it was, I was kind of proud though when they made me the 60 gunner because I was a far part, far part of the platoon. And I thought, man, that's a big responsibility. But uh, I weathered it. Uh, it's, it caught on every vine in Vietnam. They called them wait a minute vines. You run into a vine and we, you hear troops say, wait a minute, wait a minute, because they had to get untangled from the vine. But, uh, I got used to it after a while. I can help it pretty good. But every day in the boonies, it still kicked my butt somewhat. You know, 23 and a half pounds, and then you have any, all your other equipment, and then 100 rounds of ammunition in the, in the weapon. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure you're still feeling it in your back and your knees all these years later. Humping through, humping through, uh, through the yeah. bush. So where were you at in Vietnam? Uh, if you looked at the map of Vietnam, uh, of course, I landed in uh, Tassoon Air Force Base, uh, Tonsonu Air Base there in uh, Saigon, but we operated uh, almost due north of Saigon. The furthest north I went was about 80 to 85 mile at a place called uh, 
Quan Loy and Song Bay did that for a few months. Then we moved, uh, uh, worked out of Lai K also, but that, that was up. I forget the name. That, that I got into a book. I forget the name of the highway. Highway 13, I think it was. But worked out of uh, Lai K, Quan Loy, Song Bay. Then uh, my last six months, we worked out of uh, Dao Chiang, which was a Mason rubber plantation, just uh, an area just north of what they call the Iron Triangle. And uh, from Dao Chiang, I worked out of Fire Support Base Mahone and then Fire Support Base Pine Ridge. So we was in the uh, uh, Third Corps, War Zone C and D. If you looked at the map, it would show you that. So it was, uh, it was uh, flat, some hills to it, uh, a lot of uh, uh, vegetation, some triple canopy uh, jungle, uh, not too many rice paddies where I was at, some, but uh, a few around some of the hamlets, but uh, a, a lot of, uh, of rubber plantation and then the heavy vegetation in the in the jungles and stuff. So we had a little mixture, but I was not in the real mountainous areas. We had the uh, Razorbacks, which is a range of mountains we worked around, and far support base Pine Ridge was on top of that. But the most prominent landmark we could see was called Nui Baden, which was a black virgin mountain, which was just in flat ground all around it. It just rose up out of the, was an extinct volcano, just rose up out of the ground. It was a very, very high mountain. And it was uh, called a Black Virgin Mountain, like I said. And it was a, a great point of reference when you were uh, reading a map and, and, and giving a point of reference that was one of the pro most prominent, it was a most prominent landmark in our area. Yeah. I, know, I think I remember in a book, in your book, where one of your guys got lost on patrol. He kind of got left behind. Yes, he did. <laughs> I guess, was that how he uh, navigated back to the uh, fire base? No, no, he didn't have a compass in a map. He was the the rear security on one of our patrols and the best I recall, we were actually operating in a full company, two column full company March going to the jungle. And uh, he was on the right column. I believe it was. And I, I, I think he went to sleep. I'm pretty sure he went to sleep. <laughs> and we got up and moved, marched on. And they, the guy next to him forgot to turn around and tell him we were moving out. He had to face, the, where, where we came from, he was watching the trail, make sure the uh, enemy wasn't slipping up behind us, which they had a tendency to do. And we we'd been gone about two hours, and some the word got up up through the rank, you know, the column that we were missing a guy. I thought, how are we missing a guy? And uh, we stopped and uh, we went back, but we couldn't find him. And he later on he told us that when he looked around, we were gone. He tried to follow us our trail. But then it, it broke and branched off. It, it forked off. He didn't know which trail to lead. So he thought the best thing I can do is follow our trail back. Because we came off a main road. And then it was, which was a long way. But before he got there, he had to hunker down in the jungle all by himself overnight off the trail. And then he got the next morning and continued to follow that trail back to the main road. And the back, once he got to the main road, he walked back into Far Sport Base Mahon. <laughs> they called us. There was nothing done to the guy. I thought, gosh, spending a night in the jungle by yourself, that's enough punishment. Yeah, I couldn't yeah. even imagine. I'm sure his heart was probably beating in his throat the entire oh, night. I don't think he slept that night, you know. But, but uh, what a what a an event, you know. Yeah, that's what, yeah, that's punishment on its own. <laughs> we we all laughed about it, but to him it wasn't that funny, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So you know, the thing is, you know, I tell everybody. 
it's like you don't miss the war, you know, but you miss the guys. Oh, the camaraderie. It's the camaraderie that's unlike anything else, you know. And in your book, and I was just reading uh, about all the different guys and your buddies that you had with you. Are yeah. you are you still in touch with a lot of those guys, or have a yeah. lot of them already uh, passed away? Matter of fact, away? we we have an annual uh, reunion every year, and uh, this has been going on for some time. I didn't start going until two thousand eleven or twelve, but the Second Infantry Regiment has an annual reunion at a place in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, which is pretty close to Gatlinburg. Oh Burnham. yeah, yeah. We go down every year in May. We're going to go. Last year we went, even though through COVID, but there was very few people there. But uh, uh, Previous years have been 135, 140 guys from the regiment, different companies. But from wow. Alpha Company, my company in 1969, uh, in last year there was 15 of us. And uh, But with the book, writing of the book, starting in 2011 when I started writing, one of the things I, I, I knew I needed to do and wanted to do was to talk to the guys I served with. So I started with my platoon sergeant who lives in Louisville, Kentucky, not very far from me. Oh, okay, met, that's from it. Yeah, and we met, and then uh, I started talking, and he has a couple of guys' names, and uh, I started calling people. And Dexter, I'm up to 45 guys that I've served with in Vietnam that I've contacted, and uh, uh, over the years, and it's uh, like I say, this this May will meet. There's probably going to be 15 or 20 of us. Our company commander will be there. Tom Cook will be there. So well, it's, awesome. it's, that's been. If there's one thing that came out of the book that really it's keeping our stories alive for future generations to be able to, to know what we did. And, you know, it's, and I keep telling my grandkids, I said, war is not at John Wayne and Clint Eastwood. And of course they said, who's that? I said, okay, I said, okay <laughs> war is, war is not the rock. <laughs> you know, or John Cena. <laughs> yeah. I said, I said, okay. But to keep our stories alive. And so future generations can read that. That was one of my benefits and uh, our, our, that I thought was necessary for the book. The other was to recognize and honor all the guys I served with, especially the 18 guys killed in action. I thought that's my best way of reckon, you know, honoring those guys is putting in writing and seeing their name in the book. And then the third thing was I, that, that I got from the book was reconnecting with all the guys I served, not all the guys, but with, you know, I'm up to 45 guys that I served with. And during that time, we found out, who the guys have, some of the guys have passed on, you know, uh, with cancer and everything, you know, but uh, several guys have, have passed on since then. But boy, it's been a, it, what a, what a heart uh, felt thing it is. It's just great to meet guys that I served with in 1969 and to meet those guys 50 years later, you know, and then we sit down and chat and talk and it's just been great. You know, and that, that's, that's, that is spectacular. You know, and, and the oh, best it, thing it, is, is like y'all can pick up like y'all you know, were just wife, out in the bush yesterday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My wife went with me to the first reunion. There was, uh, no, I'm sorry. The, the third reunion I went to and I finally talked to her to go with me. She said, I'll be around a bunch of guys. I said, yeah, we can go. Other wives go. So she sat and uh, the first day we were there and she heard us, telling our stories to each other. And, you know, we just, you know, remember this, Joe? Yeah, we did this now. So we were driving home Sunday night and she was over there. She was kind of quiet, you know. And I said, are you okay? She said, yeah. She, she was sniffling. I said, what's the matter? I said, did, did I do something wrong? She said, no, no. She said, I, I can't sit through that again. I said, what? She said, listen, you guys talk about what was going on. She said, you talked about the guys were killed and guys were She said, uh, that's heart-wrenching. She said, 
I just know that I sent sit, sit through that again. Listen, so now when she goes with me, her and the girls go shopping and stuff. She said it's 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 heart wrenching to hear about the stories and I, and I said, honey, it wasn't all bad. There was some great camaraderie. She said, I know that, but when those those times come up, you guys talk about when so and so was killed and how it moved you guys and and uh, when so and so was wounded, you didn't know how they they were doing. You know, I said, yeah, it's. But I said we need to talk about that. You know, and she said, I understand, but. Uh, so let me ask you, uh, so what sparked you to write your book? Because that is the one thing that I have told a lot of my fellow friends that I serve with, like, Yo, we have to keep our stories alive. And the biggest thing is you talk to people from Korea, World War II or Vietnam, you ask them about their experience. The first thing they will tell you, I don't want to talk about it. So what made you want to talk about it? And Dexter, I'm right the opposite. I'm a very open person and I think it's good for people not to harbor thoughts and feelings, but to be able to express those. It, it, it just helps you mentally. And so when I retired from Ingersoll Rand in 2011, the company I was working for, and I'd already retired from the National Guard, my middle daughter, Jennifer, she said, Dad, now you can sit down and you can write about what you did in Vietnam. Because we don't know. We hear you talk a little bit about it much, much. She said, we were your children during Desert Storm. We know what you're going on. We, you know, we, we, we know everything going on. I said, okay. So she said, I'd like for you to just to start, you know, make some notes and stuff so we can pass on to our grandkids. So I started writing, you know, and just making a little journal. And it, I'll, I'll make this as short as I can. But I was writing this journal, and I was telling stories about one of my best friends, Joe Spruill. And I said, I got to contact Joe. He lived in LaGrange, Georgia. And I called and called and called. Finally got a hold of his sister, Jan Spruill. And uh, I told her I couldn't wait to see Joe. We were such big buddies. She said, "Is and Joe was a big man. We called him Big Joe, and they called me Little Joe." Oh yeah, the other yeah, that's right. <laughs> so I was talking talking to her. And I said, "I can't wait to talk to Big Joe." She said, "Little Joe." She said, "He died in 1974 from a brain aneurysm while he was in third grade school." I was devastated. Mm-hmm. And I told her, "I said I've written some stories about Joe. Let me send them to you, and you can keep them and just." You know, and maybe that means something to you. She said, but so I did. And uh, she called me about seven or eight days later. She said, I love the stories. It was just, just some short stories. You know, she said, you need to make a book. And I said, well, I don't know how to do that. She said, well, in about three or four days, somebody's going to call you. She said, just listen to him. He's, he's a relative of mine. His last name is Spruill. So I did this, this guy named Stephen Spruill. He called me and said, you don't know who I am, but I'm Jan and Joe's first cousin. And uh, he was an author, and he had some great books published back in the years. He said, I'd like to help you be your mentor. Let's make this into a book. We didn't even have a title for it. You know, he said, just think about what you like to call your book, but keep writing. You know, and he said, uh, send me, the, as you put it together, send me some stories I look at. It. And he did. And he was the one that really helped me get to where I could write a book, you know, with the flow and stuff. And then uh, uh, I'm forever in his debt because he was he kept advising, never wrote anything. He only advised me, you know, and, uh, but I'm a forever in Jen and Steve Spruill's dead because they really prompted me to write. Dexter was sitting at the, at the computer. <laughs> I said, I'm going to write a, we'll write some. And for two days I sat and looked at a blank screen. What do you start? <laughs> I know so the feeling. I went, I went and got my, my letters. My mom saved all the letters I sent home. And I went and got those letters, read my own letters. I thought, oh, I was here this day. And I was here. This. 
So I was an E4 this time, and, and that really helped me get started, you know. So, and uh, uh, my mentor said, just as the words flow, just keep writing. Don't worry about punctuation. Don't worry about, you know, uh, grammar. And I'll just, just write, and you can, you can clean it up later. But as your words, as your thoughts flow, just keep writing down. I had, I had notepads sitting everywhere, so in, beside the bed, in the kitchen, and the living when a thought hit me, I'd write it down so I wouldn't forget that, you know. Or one of the guys would call me and I would talk to them. I'd make sure I captured all that stuff. So, and then uh, that's when the first book, the first edition came out. And after the first edition came out, the next day I was working on the second edition. Wow. <laughs> I wanted to change this, you know. I, if I had done it, I'd done it this way and added more stories. So, so how long was it from start to when you finished your first, the first book? How long I did it take you? I started in 2011, in, the, in, 2000, in May of 2011. And the, it became published in uh, March of 2014. So almost three years. Man, that's not bad. I mean, I tell everybody, my book, it took me seven years. Yeah, yeah. But see, I was retired and I was, I was dedicated time to it. It was so bad, Dexter, that my wife would tell me sometimes, get up to the computer and just go outside and enjoy the world. You're so wrapped up in writing and stuff. And she was right. I was just, I was focusing 10, 12 hours a day. I don't know. I got so wrapped up in it. I had to pull myself from the computer and get up and do different things, you know. But, uh, uh, you know, the, the writing was, to me, was about uh, 50 to 60, 60% of the challenge. The second challenge, biggest part of that, was getting a good publisher. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and a-, a publisher didn't want money from me. When I published my book, I... It didn't cost me a thing. I went through Sunbury Press. I got turned down by 10 different publishers. And then I had five different publishers that would publish it for me if I'd put money up front. Of course, my mentor, Mr. Spruill, Steve Spruill said, don't do that. We'll find a publisher. And Sunbury Press, they got it, was impressed with the book. And they had never done a, a war biography. And that was the first one. Wow. And it didn't, didn't cost me a thing. Uh, I just had to sign my life away to them. No, I'm just kidding. I had to <laughs> sign the, the royalties and stuff, and I'm restricting on what I can do. To but it's been great. They've been a great publisher. Yeah, and, that's uh, awesome. Yeah, yeah. I, I went the self-published route myself, but I had, I paid a lot for it. Yeah, but oh, yeah. a lot of people don't realize, I was like, you know, it's really not about the money for me. It's yeah. about getting the story out that's for the exactly people to right. hear. Yeah. And like yeah. you said, for my fallen brothers to keep their memories alive. Yeah. That's that's at the end of the day. And like you said, just my kids now have something of mine. They know my story from my perspective, not from everybody else's perspective. And I'm sure that's what your your kids wanted. And now they have it. Yeah. My son, when he got the first copy, I gave all my grandkids and my kids a copy, you know, and then my nephews, I gave away a hundred books off the bat, you know, and my son came back and finally said, daddy, I didn't have a clue. He said, I'm so proud of you. He said, uh, it really moved me. And I said, well, I'm sorry, I appreciate that. And he's, he's got his second edition too, but uh, it, it, my, my daughters, you know, they were like, it's tough to read that. It's tough for us to sit down and read, especially those times when it was so rough on you guys. I said, I understand that, but you have to know what we went through. My dad never talked about war too. I, I knew he was in the, it was a combat engineer with the uh, 160th combat engineering battalion. And, but he never talked about World War II. Kept it bottled up. And, and I'm right the opposite. I took after my mom's family. We're all big talkers. Uh, we can uh, uh, talk with the best of them. Had to be careful. I don't, I don't start uh, 
exaggerating on things, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I shot one million rounds to the M60, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, well, the, the part where you shot up the uh, the base. That's right. Yeah, that <laughs> and they got mad at you because you shot up the bathroom and the uh, the showers on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. We were moving. <laughs> that was so funny because you know you got to. And, and we hadn't had any contact in you know like four, five, six days, so we became a little bit lax. And then I had the sixty and moved up there, and and uh, it was the they came down and said we we don't know if this is that this this has been empty for six months. This base. They said we're not moving in until we we'll fire it up real good, and then we we'll have to send the engineers and check for uh, booby traps. Don't get into bunkers. And they said uh, get online and really fire it up. And boy, did I have fun! <laughs> <laughs> the other guys, mm, I remember a guy named Chizer from Chicago, a black guy from Chicago. Him and I were best friends. And Chizer told me he said you did a real good job, Joe. You shut up the showers and the outhouses. You did a really good job. <laughs> <laughs> So speaking of that, you know, I know a bit, one of the big controversies with the Vietnam was at that point in time in America, you know, a lot of black people were still, you know, the civil rights movement was still fresh. Sure, sure, yes. How was it within the platoons? Because we all know, you know, of course, there's going to be racism and stupid people. But how was it within your, your all's, you know, like your squad on the platoon level? Yeah, and even in our company level, we didn't have a problem. We did. We were all together. The, skin, the color of our skin didn't matter. Uh, uh, we just, just, just wasn't there. And, uh, in the, some of the rear echelon troops there was, you could tell it there, but we were, uh, cohesive. We were just like glue together, you know? And, uh, uh, us, my friends didn't matter if they were, uh, Hispanic, black, it, it didn't really, you know, it, Asian, it didn't matter. We were just, we had each other's backs and, uh, ammo bearer, one of, one of my good friends from, uh, Mississippi, Edward Lewis was a black guy I loved dearly. He loved me. And I've been trying to find him for the last 10 years. And I, but I didn't know what hometown he was. And if you looked up Edward Lewis, there's a lot of Edward Lewis's. So uh, I want to find him and the guy. Uh, uh, it's uh, just, we just didn't have that problem at all, you know? And uh, when I came back at Fort Meade, Maryland, it was, pretty high there with, with just a lot of uh, uh, drug dealings and stuff going on, but there was some uh, racism at Fort Meade, but in our unit uh, with the guys I dealt with, there was not. I was always able to avoid that, you know, it's, uh, I didn't take, I looked at everybody the same, you know, and uh, I think they looked at me the same, so we were very, a very good unit in Vietnam. I was proud of being part of Alpha Company. You know? And that's the great thing, you know, I tell people about combat, like, when I got yeah. hurt, yeah. I did not care what color somebody was. I was like, yeah. they got on American uniform with that American flag patch. Right. Help and me, it, please. You know, yeah, you don't, it, it don't, you don't, you don't think about blood. It. You didn't matter who it came from. As long as it's the right blood type. That's exactly, right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I love about the military so much in the veteran community. We're able to look past that. But the one thing about your book that stood out to me, Mr. Fair, it was huh? reading the ending of it and talking about you coming home and putting yes. on your riot gear and going right. to face protesters. You have been in a Vietnam for almost a year, and now right. you come home and you're gearing up to go stand face-to-face with yeah. protesters calling you all sorts of evil names. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I was reading that, and I was like, this seems so eerily familiar, and it reminded me of the last two years here in America. 
Like I said, I'm a police officer here in Louisville, Kentucky. Oh, yeah. I was, yeah, I was front line for the yeah. riots in Louisville in 2020. I can't, right. I started back in June 15th of 2020. And I just remember, like, my God, like, this cannot be America. And yes. just reading your story, it just sent, your story was like 40 years before. Yo, but now I'm reading this like, this yeah. is like now what's happening. And it's so crazy how history is repeating itself. Yes. And yes, so ha- you having gone through that and then seeing this again in 2020, yeah. what does yeah. that, what does that make you think? What's on your mind seeing that? Yeah, it's, you know, when I, when I came back from Vietnam, you're right. I came back to serve a year in Vietnam and I was at Fort Meade, Maryland, and they had the Kent State riots and the killing of the mm-hmm. Kent State students. And of course the protesters moved with Marston, Washington, DC. That was, I think I'm telling you, May of 69 and uh, May of 70, I'm sorry. And what an eerie feeling that, like, what's happening to my country? You know, I've been fighting a war and then fighting the enemy. And now I'm coming here and we're, I'm fighting Americans, you know, what an eerie feeling. And when I see the riots and stuff, I, I think to people, riots don't do you any good. Peaceful demonstration, I'm all for that. Oh, yeah. But, Tearing up property, hurting people—it it it makes your point not valid now. Whatever you're protesting for, if it becomes tearing up property, hurting people, destroying it—it it, it makes to me you've you've lost your point of protest. And that's Absolutely. just and put your and I always said this. Told my wife, I said, put yourself and and a, a friend of mine, my tune sergeant, retired from the uh, local police force. Oh wow. Yeah, he retired, uh, let's see, 2000, about 2011, Michael Schellenberger. He was on the, uh, uh, what do they call it, that reaction team you guys have? The SWAT team? SWAT team. He was on the SWAT team, yeah, yeah. He retired 2010 or 2011, 12, not sure. Oh, okay, he retired right when I came on. I came yeah, on great guy, great guy. He was my platoon sergeant. And uh, I thought about him, you know, and, and having, if he was facing any rides and stuff. I thought, what what's going through your mind, Shelly? You know, we call him Shelly. And, and like for you, a veteran, what goes through your mind? I know what goes through my mind. I said, this is not right. Peaceful is fine. Riding, there's no need for riding whatsoever. You know, you're only hurting your calls. And uh, uh, it splits the country even more. And right now, uh, sometimes I feel our countries around politics. It's just too split for, you know, in along uh, the political divide. And we've got to pull ourselves together, you know, which we will. We always been able to do that. And we did it in the, after uh, 9-11, the country pulled together. And, I, you know, I hate for it to be something like that to, to get us to pull together. Yeah, know? I would. God, I would hate that. You know, that's why I tell people tragedy. It takes tragedy for yeah. us to pull together. But you would think, you know, I tell for me, I figured the George Floyd incident where the yeah. officer stepped on his neck and, you know, killed him. I thought that that was going to pull us together as a country because yeah, every yeah. cop I knew was like, Hey, that's, that's not wrong. right. That's wrong. That's exactly. There was nobody, no cops. Like, of course there's a few idiots here and there. Like, oh, wow. He deserved it. You yeah. know, but yeah. for no. the most part, we, I was like, yo, let's So I thought we were going to be unified and it just tore us down the middle more, yeah. you know, and right. yeah. politicians and the news media took hold of that and ran with it. Yeah. And the next yeah. thing you know, you know, I tell people I felt more safe in Iraq when I was in Abu Ghraib, as opposed yeah. when I was in the streets of Louisville during the riots, because oh yeah, yeah, I can imagine that. Yeah, yeah. 
I had machine guns and I had, you know, a good group of guys with me, you know, but I had good guys with us, but the rules of engagement are not the same. We can't just shoot up American citizens. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, you're you're right. The country's divided, but maybe it'll be something that'll, and I'm hoping it's nothing, not a tragedy, but something good will come out and we'll pull us all back together again. You know, it's, uh, and I'm like you, I thought, what what happened to George Floyd was completely wrong, you know? yeah, I'm not saying he was a good guy. He had his problems too. Oh yeah, the, the result of him dying was completely wrong. And I think most Americans say that wrong. You know, it's you got a few diehards, if you want to call them that, or you know, it's a bit disagree. But uh, I'm hoping that we can get back to the country we, we want. You know, it's I still love America, still fight for it, but we just need to all be cohesive and pulled together. You know, so. Uh, well, I hope so. But then, so last thing, let me ask you. So when you came back, I know a lot of Vietnam veterans tells us the stories of how they changed clothes at the airport because they were ashamed, not ashamed of their service, but how they were treated. You didn't seem to have that experience coming back. No, you know, I was proud to wear my uniform. I was glad I had to, you know, the only thing is they got me. I'd been over fighting a war and I was 19 year old and uh, had been drinking beer and whiskey over there, having a good time sometimes, you know. <laughs> and I got to the San Francisco airport, and I walked to the airport lounge there. I had about a three-hour delay, and I ordered a beer, and the guy had to have my ID. The only ID, I didn't have my license, right? It was a military ID, and I, he said, you're not 21. I said, what do you mean? He said, I can't serve you a beer. I said, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> I'm in uniform. He said, I don't care. What uniform you had? So I, I was disappointed. Little, so I went, moved to back of the bar and got a coat. And some older gentleman was there, and he came up and he plopped down a, a beer bottle. And he said, "Here, this is on me." I said, "You may get in trouble." He said, "Nah, they ain't gonna do anything about it." You know, bartender looked at me, kind of glared a little bit, but he was okay with it. So that was, that yeah. Was, yeah, it's a shame that you can go stack bodies for your country and see your best friends get killed, yeah, but you can't come home and have a beer. That's right. Yeah, that, How that, bizarre. That was a drawback, but I understood the laws and stuff, you know, but I'm hoping they change it, you know, but yeah. Man, well, Mr. Fair, I appreciate you coming on my show and sharing with us your, yes, your journey in your book. I, I really yeah. do appreciate it. Like I said, um, welcome home. Cause I know y'all never, y'all never got the welcome home that y'all deserved. So every time I see a Vietnam veteran, I always tell them welcome home because when I came home, it was, yeah. we were treated like heroes. Yeah. I mean, I, I had to tell people to stop, but you all, I, my heart goes out to y'all. Well, when I came home from Desert Storm, I really felt we had a huge celebration here uh, returning because I was in the guard unit. We came home with the entire unit. Our camels had huge celebration. I shook a lot of hands and hugged a lot of good-looking ladies. And there I you go. <laughs> I, was, we, was, I was first on, I was marching the troops down the middle of Main Street. In the back of my mind, I thought, I wish my Vietnam friends, my comrades, could be here marching with us. What a what a what a great time it was. We didn't get to do that in, in uh, when we came back to Vietnam, you know. But uh, I think the guys understand now, you know. And, and the United States people are making up for that now. They recognize the Vietnam vets were not treated that well when they come home. And I believe people are trying to make amends to that now. With I go out and tell them wear my Vietnam shirt or my hat. And you know, a lot of here, a lot of people thank us for our service and stuff. I think they have remorse from what was happening back 50, 50, 60 years or 55 years ago. Yes, sir. You know, I, I think people realize, you know, the soldiers, we don't get to choose the wars we go fight in. 
that's the politicians that that's it's not it's not on us. We right. just we're supposed to go do where we're our job, plain and that's simple. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so before we go, sir, can you tell the people where they can get your book, or if you yes. have any social media? Yeah, the uh, uh, the book is available from Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Books and Million, and numerous book outlets, and also directly from Sunbury Press, which is in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, if they'd like a signed copy, I keep signed copies at home. And uh, let me give you my uh, email address. If you would, that would be okay if I do that. Yes, sir. Yep. Tell them. Yeah. Pe- tell the people it's, how to get in contact with you. It's all lowercase. It's J O E S A I R A one two one at gmail.com. If they'll email me, and what I do is uh, they don't pay for it up front. You send me an email. I ship the book to you. You can pay me by PayPal or a check or money order, but you don't send money until the book meets your satisfaction. If the book doesn't meet your satisfaction, the book is free. How's that? Wow. Yeah. But uh, be glad to send out signed copies. I've been a very busy person. From my home, I've sent out over 700 copies from my house, signed copies from here in the last year and a half. Wow. So it's moving still. That's good. Yeah, so the book has sold well, done well on Amazon. And like I say, it's it's available as a paperback or Kindle or a CD. But the audio book is still the first edition. They haven't got the second edition on the audio yet. So okay. I'm, about to act, I'm actually about to start on my audio book in, uh, at the end of this month. Yeah, I'm going to get your book. Make sure I do that. Yeah, it's, uh, yes, sir. I'll send you a copy. All right. Appreciate that very much, okay? Yes, sir. Yes, sir, Mr. Farewell. Like I said, I truly appreciate you having you on. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been author Joe Fair with the book Call Sign Dracula. Phenomenal book. I'm telling everybody, stop what you're doing. Go order the book. You will not regret it. It is a great story, a great firsthand account of what it was like to be a grunt in Vietnam. Ladies and gentlemen, Joe Fair, sir, thank you once again. Thank you, sir. No problem, sir. We, I will talk to you again, sir, and I will get that book out to you. You have a good one, Mr. Fair. And once again, thank welcome you. home and thank you for your service. Thank you, sir. Hey, no problem. Take care.